Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. The female sniper. Quiet. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hello, I am Brian. Today's episode is Cloaked in Silence, our sixth episode on Metal Gear Solid V. Today, we wrap up the first act in Afghanistan, reacquainting ourselves with Quiet and Huey Emmerich along the way. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigurd becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazahira Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. Let's open today talking about our Afghanistan setting here for Act 1. We do return to these maps throughout the game after Diamond Dogs begins running missions in Africa, and at the end of Chapter 1, where ostensibly the main story ends with OKB0 and Sahelanthropus. To create Afghanistan, Kojima Productions mapped out large swaths of Jordan, which has similar geodiversity, but isn't quite the same. Afghanistan is a little more mountainous and less deserty than depicted, with different weather patterns as well. No big deal though, and a lot of the actual outposts, ruins, and palaces on these maps are modeled after actual Afghani structures, and I guess it would be worth pointing out that Afghanistan is, or was, a war zone during this game's production. Sandstorms are frequent here, and the topography is namely rocky hills and mountains with some sand dunes thrown in. Vegetation is sparse, but there is stuff to pick up from other base and some shrubbery to hide in. Bears, wolves, goats, and sheep will be seen on the maps, and using capture cages you can pick up bats, gerbils, and other small creatures. Afghanistan's root is Afghan, which derives from the Sanskrit word Asfakan, which translates to horsemen or cavalrymen, which makes Afghanistan the Rohan of Middle Earth. Sorry, I mean Middle East. Just wanted to shout that out for the Bad Lord of the Rings show, and also how much snake on D-horse feels appropriate for this setting. Yeah, uh, I was trying to make a uh, joke about uh, what are a, a fox, an ocelot, and a snake doing in the Ritter Mark, but I can't really put, I can't really get that <laughs> no, one in. No, that's good, that's good. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I feel like we've kind of already, like, uh, most of the most interesting places in Afghanistan are the caves, cave systems, and all the underground stuff, but, like, it's... It's I'm trying to think of something more elegant than just saying it's the it's a Western area, but it it is. Like mm-hmm. I'm sure that 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 the idea to to set a game in the '80s was always that was always something he wanted to do. That's very obviously you can tell from this game's soundtrack was just like here's all my favorite songs. <laughs> Although there aren't enough New Order songs to be his true playlist, um, to be Kojima's true playlist. It's very obvious that, that I think, especially after RDR, 
Kojima probably would have been very interested in making a Western. He never really made a Western, despite flirting with a little bit during MGS3. So that, I think, is the real reason that this game is set here. And the, the reason that it uh, it looks like... The, well, I mean, it looks like Afghanistan, but the reason it looks like this specifically is to be the Western game. And uh, that really, like... It makes the just the way like a lot of the bases look, the way that a lot of the, they're set up, make a lot more sense. The a lot of the um, like the vantage points are, are straight out of like, well, what he would think a western is. So I don't know, three ten to Yuma. Yeah, you can you can see it like uh, Solid Snake perch, like like John Wayne and the Searchers looking down yeah. at like a indigenous camp trying to figure out how he's going to go in and save. Um, the lady who was captured, something like that. It's a very common Western trope. Um, it's something that George Lucas parodied and not parodied, but well, kind of parodied at Attack of the Clones mm -hmm. when Anakin is searching for his mom amongst the Sand People, um, or Tuscan Raiders, rather, to be politically correct. Um, so yeah, it you can see, especially with the way Ocelot and Snake ride up, it's definitely meant to be a Sergio Sergio Leone kind of setting. To be to be woke. So I, was, I was just imagining like Owen Lars being like, damn, they're too woke now. Woke most evaporators <laughs> or some like just confusing nonsense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The people of Afghanistan are made up of Pashtuns, Tajiks, Hazaras, and Uzbeks. The makeup in part caused by the borders inflicted on these people by other imperial powers, lumping in groups from bordering countries by the lines dividing Afghanistan. The country has two lingua francas, a Pashto and Dari, the latter an Afghani dialect of Farsi or Persian. Bilinguality is very common in the country. Afghanistan is often called the graveyard of empires as recently as 2021 by Joe Biden. Empires dating back to that of Alexander the Great, to the Persian Empire, through to the British Empire, the Soviet Union, and most recently the U.S. have found Afghanistan an untenable, unconquerable region. To clarify, the graveyard here doesn't necessarily mean that the empires mentioned ended when they came upon Afghanistan. The three Anglo-Afghan wars didn't mean the end of the British Empire, nor did the failed Soviet takeover directly cause the fall of the USSR. And sadly, our withdrawal from Afghanistan has done little to remove the imperial footprint of the US on the world. Of course, the failures are part of larger decay and difficulties of overripe empires. Afghanistan was officially codified as a sovereign body, the Emirate of Afghanistan, in 1823. During the 19th century, the British and Russian Empire engaged in the Great Game, an imperial tug of war over the lands in Central and West Asia, all the while the young country of Afghanistan was having its own civil strife between different ethnic groups in the country fighting for the seat of power. So we get a period of civil wars mixed with wars with the British, known as the Anglo-Afghan Wars, of which there were three. The first one took place in 1839 through 1842, the second 1870 to 1880, and the last in 1919. The British staged their side of the war from British India, which at the time bordered almost the entire eastern side of Afghanistan. In 1973, former PM Mohammad Sardar Daud Khan took power non-violently while the King Zahir Shah was getting surgery in Italy. Khan would abolish the monarchy and declare himself PM and president. He also tried to institute all sorts of social and economic reforms, which broadly failed. And in 1978, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan overthrew his rule, 
violently this time, assassinating him and his family. This was the Saar Revolution, reorganizing the country into the De- Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, which it remained until 1992. You love that. <laughs> The PDPA platform was Marxist-Leninist, implementing several secular reforms in face of the heavily religious laws in the country. They heavily reformed laws around women, banning forced marriages and granting suffrage, as well as ensuring equal opportunity to jobs, healthcare, education, and aid for child-rearing. The PDPA worked closely with the Soviets, the latter helping to build roads and schools and train military forces. Not all went well, though. In turning the country secular, mosques were closed down, religious laws were rolled back, which caused unrest amongst the people, a deeply religious population. Islam proved to be a unifying force here, the one thing the various ethnic and tribal groups of Afghanistan all shared in common. By the end of the 1970s, 24 of the 28 provinces in Afghanistan were experiencing unrest and public demonstrations against the government. Tens of thousands had been murdered or imprisoned by the PDPA, precipitating these events. This is what led to the Soviet invasion of December of 1979, with 100,000 troops from the USSR joining about as many in the Afghan army to put down these insurrections. This is where the U.S. got involved, along with its uh, petroleum best friend forever, Saudi Arabia, providing upwards of $20 $20 billion in cash and weapons, including the FIM-92 Stinger missile, or as Phantom Pain calls it, the Honeybee. The Stinger has been part of the MGS arsenal since Metal Gear Solid 1, so it's fun circling back to where that meme took hold in real life as well. They provided over 2,000 Stinger missiles to the Afghanistan Mujahideen, the local resistance group. As it turns out, most of those weapons would end up being turned on Americans with the rise of Osama bin Laden and the Taliban in the late 90s, and then, of course, during the war on terror following 9-11. Funny how that happens. There is much more detail to go in with both the Soviet and U.S. invasions of Afghanistan, but I think the above gives us enough to discuss why why Afghanistan for Metal Gear Solid V beyond it being a period-appropriate theater of war. Like we said when discussing Cyprus, the British Empire is a stand-in for the American Empire in this game. Using America's predecessor in a historical context to opine on our declining empire, and what better place to do it than one of America's current quagmires, or was, through the production of this game. A location where the British Empire struggled for over a century beforehand. This broken world of snakes and metal gears was born out of the Cold War, though the defining conflict of the times would end up being Big Boss versus Zero. The Phantom Pain incident signals a shift in that conflict, with Big Boss's new copy, Zero fading away due to failing health, and the threat of Skullface needing to be dealt with. Grounding the shift in the war for the boss's will in the actual real-world shift happening in the Cold War makes a lot of sense. We are seeing the end of the detente period of the 1970s, which Peace Walker focused on, and the reinvigoration of proxy wars between the U.S. and USSR, one that will herald the eventual collapse of the Soviet Union. Because of its long history of military incursion, Afghanistan itself is a land of forever war, a term we use regularly now to talk about the unending U.S. imperial wars across the globe. This ties us back to the opening of this game, just another day in a war without end. Does that mean outer heaven or Afghanistan? It's very possible that this region of Afghanistan is adjacent to Selinoyarsk, which was located on the southwest end of the USSR and overlaps with Zanzibar land, 
Big Boss's Outer Heaven 2.0 from Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake. Along those lines, some people have also theorized that Zanzibar Land is Selino Yarsk itself. Either way, this specific region of Central Asia is a Metal Gear hotspot, an area that Na- Naked Snake, Venom Snake, and Solid Snake all fought in. Apropos of nothing, I want to read this excerpt from Peter Bergen's Holy War Inc. about Osama bin Laden, well, because you'll get it. Islam has a long history of tolerance. Indeed, the word Islam is related to salam, which means peace. But for Osama bin Laden, it's quite simple. Attacks against American citizens are necessary so they can taste the bitter fruit Muslim civilians have long tasted. Strange that this holy man's holy war would come down to a simple lust for revenge. Wow, have you ever heard that phrase before? No. Okay, cool. Moving on. <laughs> I really like um, the Afghanistan setting. We kind of went over the politics. Um, something that is not really discussed in this game, but I think is relevant to the regional politics, even to this day, is the drug war, the U.S. war on drugs that extends internationally, and specifically that Afghanistan has like one thing it can truly export, like one great natural resource, yeah. and that's opium or um, poppy, however you want to describe it. Um And there is a global demand for poppy, opium, heroin, however you want to say it. But because of the U.S.'s like zero tolerance war on drugs, especially internationally, that is just not a um, export that Afghanistan is allowed to use. And it honestly, I wouldn't say would solve Afghanistan's problems, but it would be huge in terms of both reducing violence and giving it an economic cash crop to actually help raise the standard of living of the people in its own country. Mm-hmm. I'm just re- I'm realizing just now that I uh, I remember having a very icky feeling when, oh, I don't remember exactly when it was, but when Pete Buttigieg was giving some kind of campaign speech and behind him was just a mineral map of Afghanistan. And I was like, that doesn't make me feel good as someone who's, who's run around Afghanistan looking for literally for minerals. Like, I wonder mm-hmm. if that's a, a correlation, if there's a correlation there. And then my brain said, no, there's not. And I, I kept playing Metal Gear. But, you know, uh, I distinctly remember that uh, uncomfortable feeling seeing that. So just thought I'd bring that up. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think that's very on point. I mean, that's ultimately, I think we talked about this a couple episodes, and especially with Peace Walker, is that um, obviously America fights wars for ideology, but really no, the I, ideology yeah. is backed by the natural resources they want to extract from other countries. Um, some countries going socialist, if they don't have oil or if they don't have diamonds, um, it's less of a bother to the U.S. than a country that does have oil reserves or other kind of valuable natural resources. Oh, I've, I've said this before, maybe not on this podcast, but I probably have. So huge coincidence that all the biggest enemies to democracy are also all the ones who uh, the U.S. Uh, businesses don't have stake in minerals and, and oil export rights. Mm-hmm. Like it's weird, weird that there's an over, such an overlap there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something we're going to return to uh, when we get to Africa and we talk about Angola and Zaire, which is now the Republic of Congo. Like it's strange that you know Venezuela and all these uh, South American countries are huge enemies of progress and democracy because they're socialist but we don't care about like you know norway <laughs> sweden yeah, they don't give it, a shit it, weird that's strange i don't know what what could possibly be going on with the makeup of either the people who live there or the minerals they sit on top of that would make us feel like that really it's lucky for us 
The other uh, thing I wanted to shout out here is the James Bond film, The Living Daylights, which about a third, like the final act of it, basically takes place in Afghanistan. Dedicated to the brave Mujahideen fighters of Afghanistan. Yeah, the brave Mujahideen fighters. We get to see them be the good guys in this yep. um, because they're fighting the evil commie Soviets. Uh, but like the base that Bond and um, I forget the name of the Bond girl in this movie. Uh, so does the movie. Um, so. But uh, they are imprisoned in a Russian airbase in Afghanistan that has kind of very similar layouts to some of the encampments we see in this game. Um, and then the Soviets are trading diamonds for um, weapons and stuff like that. And it's all involved in the drug trade, the opium trade. So you can see like a lot of the things that made the Afghanistan setting in this game like are kind of, I wouldn't say just lifted, yeah. but you can see a lot of the similarity from the James Bond film also set here. And it was filmed in like 1985, 86 for an 87 release. So it's very like time appropriate as well. He's definitely, I mean, obviously he's seen it. So, mm -hmm. oh yeah. Um, Cause there's a whole thing in that movie where the Soviets are smuggling diamonds uh, through like medical mm -hmm. containers mm -hmm. Um, and they're using that to buy opium, which they're turning around to sell for weapons or something like that. Uh, but it's all very, all those components are basically in this game, uh, which is interesting. Not interesting, just, you know, it's Kojima doing his thing. Yeah, yeah. We diamond dogs are now a force to be reckoned with. We've got the world's attention. We're not some tribal militia. So don't act like one. You will learn how a real soldier fights. You will forget everything Hollywood taught you. And if I catch you doing something else, you'll know it. Engravings give you no tactical advantage whatsoever. There was some fancy shooting. At the end of our last Episode, Venom Snake had defeated the Skulls and extracted the honeybee from Smazai Base after properly meeting Skullface for the first time. Returning to Mother Base, we find a young and scrappy Diamond Dogs unit, whose ranks are swelling from Snake's first few missions. Ocelot even imparts some wisdom he learned from Naked Snake back in MGS3. Ocelot could be doing these lines to also help buoy Venom Snake hypnotherapy, constantly reminding him of Big Boss's memories. We'll run through various missions now that come up between the next story mission. Uh, Brian, just chime in if you have anything to add to this. Um, the first one is Red Brass. Um, basically, the word of Big Boss's arrival in Afghanistan has spread, and the Soviets are fortifying in response. Um, it's possible they are also confusing Skullface's activity and XOF's activity with Big Boss being in the area. So three Soviet commanders are meeting to discuss the threat of Big Boss, and they meet at... Uh, Dawailakalai base, um, and there are some optional objectives to wait for the commanders to meet because um, they're coming from three different base camps and rendezvousing in a centrally located one. Um, and you can either try and pick them off as they make their way to the meeting, or the additional objectives are to let them all meet, overhear their conversation, and then either eliminate or extract them all. Um, and then we kind of after the mission, Ocelot tortures the commanders to get some more intel about the Soviet movements as well as what XOF might be up to in the area. The next mission is Occupation Forces. Um, this is a mission about the Soviets refortifying Smazai Base, where the skulls have appeared, you know, where the skulls appeared last episode and turned their soldiers into meat puppets. 
So they are moving in a heavy tank column and you basically have to eliminate the column or, or locate the column and eliminate the threat. Um, the mission is structured like a lot of missions in this game where you have to track down an intel file first. Um, and that intel file is at one of the outposts. And when you scan it, it gives you like the path of the tank column, which you can destroy. Yep. Yeah. Um, this mission also has a subsistence version uh, near the end of the game where you have to do this fully OSP. You have to uh, pick up weapons and explosives to eliminate the tank or use your Fulton, which you do come equipped with. That's what I did. No, I was just I'm re- remembering this one. <laughs> uh, I did want to say really quick. uh kind of supports the idea of Afghanistan as the Soviet Vietnam. Uh, I, I'm really just, I'm having fun imagining Soviet brass having to like be briefed upon like all our men were turned into meat puppets by the skulls. Like, like it's just a normal thing to, to, to have a debrief about. And that made me think of all the uh, urban, I'm sure there are, I'm, in fact, I know that there are a bunch of uh weird reports you know there are there were in vietnam and there were in afghanistan of like there were when we were in afghanistan of like uh gins and all the like strained every time mm-hmm. you go to every time someone invades a country they have to also deal with all that all those countries cryptids and weird report <laughs> and it's just fun to imagine like a, a official report of like our men saw a, a giant robot stomping around and killing all of our men mm-hmm and Dr. Manhattan uh, walking yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. in the middle of the jungle oh. kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. So the next mission is Back Up, Back Down, um, which is one of my favorite missions. This one comes with an extreme version at the end of the, ga- uh, end of the game, which is just a s- much harder version of it. Basically, the Mujahideen are planning a counteroffensive against the Soviet reinforcements moving into the area. And Snake's mission is to knock out at least one of the vehicles to uh, get a mission complete. In total, there are about seven different like armored vehicles, tanks being moved around. Um, this mission has a ton of side objectives and little things going on. Uh, while there are a steady stream of armored vehicles moving around for you to destroy, there will also be trucks moving weaponry and prisoners being transported. All things Snake can get in the middle of to complete the bonus objectives and get a higher ranking and more rewards. Uh, for me, I hop on D-Horse and basically run around like a madman trying to stop all the vehicles. Yep. Um, at this point, with you know 500 hours put into this game, I know the map and vehicle movements well enough to kind of know where to go. Um, I actually deploy to an alternate landing zone than the default one, which is not something I usually do. Um, and I equip myself with the CRM missile launcher. And then I also use the EMN mines, which are able to stop tanks and armored vehicles in their tracks for about like five to 10 seconds. Um, so you can freeze the tanks and then you can extract them. Um, and then you can also use D-Horse and leave him in the middle of the road or have him defecate in the middle of the road, uh, which will also stop trucks for enough in time for you to get behind them to extract or blow up whatever you plan to do. You could put a bunch of inflatable big bosses in front of them, I imagine. Mm-hmm. You absolutely can. Um, kind of well outside the area where the tanks and stuff are moving, there's also a prisoner being escorted for um, execution. He's being escorted by four pretty har- armored guards. Um, and this is the side objective, but it's one, like the first time I was trying to figure out what to do. I'm like, where the hell is this guy? Um, and I had to run D horse, like I'd say 700 meters away from where the main action of this episode takes place just to find this guy, eliminate the guards and extract him. If you eliminate the initial wave of seven or so armored vehicles, an enemy gunship, and three more tanks will deploy to stop Big Boss. And then taking these out are also bonus objectives. 
um, which, uh, yeah, is just more stuff to do, more rewards to get. And if you take out all the tanks, ATVs, and choppers, you will S-rank this bad boy regardless of anything else you do or how many people you kill. It's lots of fun. And aside from Sahelanthropus, probably the best mission to let you just go wild with firepower. The next mission is Angel with No Wings. Uh, Soviets trying to figure out why and how villages are being wiped out without bloodshed, which is what happened to the Hamid fighters that we discussed last week. One of these devastated villages had a lone survivor, Malik, who the Soviets were questioning, and an unknown client hired Diamond Dogs to rescue Malik, who was being transferred from the Lamar Kate Palace to the Yaku Obu Supply Outpost. I've heard he was most displeased at, uh, with this. So that's a Desert World Republic reference. Mm-hmm. That's the line you Malik- get every time Malik sends Darth Malik sends uh, three assassins after you. Their line is always that Lord Malik is most displeased. You say that you hear that like ten times in that game. Malik doesn't know who would pay for his rescue. Kaz supposes it was Cypher or Skullface wanting to eliminate the one person who has clues as to what is happening in these villages where everyone is being killed. Miller covered for Malik and told the client he died during the mission. Malik, however, wants his revenge, just like all the other major characters in this game, so he joins Diamond Dogs. And then we get to the next important story mission, but this is actually unlocked first through a side-op mission, or possibly through free roam play if you're someone who's just exploring Afghanistan. The side mission leads you into Cloaked in Silence, which is in the Abe Shaifa ruins, where you will be ambushed by the female sniper, Quiet. Before we discuss the mission, though, let's lay out this controversial character. Ah, Quiet, played by Stephanie Justin also known as Tikshis, to the Soviet forces in the area. There's a lot to discuss here, so better just get to it. Quiet is a name this XOF agent takes after her Mustafar moment back in the Cyprus hospital. As we'll learn later, the parasites which were given to help her survive and recover from those injuries also included the English strain of the vocal cord parasites, which means her speaking would kill her and unleash that plague upon the English-speaking peoples of the world. The only other language she knows is Navajo, so aside from Code Talker, there's no one for Quiet to talk to. She, truly, she suffered from a heated heated gamer moment. The concept of Quiet ripples out beyond just her character, however. Starting with our protagonists, both Venom Snake and Big Boss are much more quiet in MGSV than they were in previous games, even when Snake only existed to repeat lines in the form of a question. The maps Snake Navigate are mostly open and quiet, sparsely populated areas where natural sounds aside, there is no noise but the noise you bring with you. Oh, did we mention you can bring the noise and blast music out of your chopper? Cause you can. MGSV in several ways is a more quiet Metal Gear Solid game, even if that may be hard to square with the extended hospital opening in this game. There's a lot less cutscenes relative to gameplay, the meaty codec calls are buried in the cassette tapes, And the game just tells you less, with its open world and jigsaw puzzle nature of the narrative. You have to piece together all the ins and outs of the story and politics if you want to even do that. 
Subtle or labyrinthine could also be words you use, especially with the depictions and doublespeak in this game. But quiet is apt too. I don't know. This game is, it's still is the word I would use, not quiet, but I'm sure that's part of it. I don't know. It's, it's sometimes it's hard to talk about the metaphors he uses because they're like <laughs> boardwalk empire level. Like, yeah, I get it. Metaphors. I don't really know what else to say about it. Yeah, I understand it. I too have taken middle school English, sir. <laughs> I, I, I like, um, I'm trying to think of, of the mission. The first one in Africa is what I think. I know that doesn't have to do with Afghanistan being quiet, but that one I remember being like, like struck by just still and quiet. The one where you're sticking up to the oil, oil platform, that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where, yeah, that's on, the pitch dark. Yeah, yeah on the on the approach, I remember being like kind of unnerved almost by how silent it was. Just nothing was happening, and it mm-hmm. was. Mildly creepy, which there is a little bit in this game, I think. I think that all ties together is sort of a post, because this, this is post-PT, so this is post-him, post-Kojima, Kojima's little uh, uh, dalliance into horror. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'm interested, I just want to know, because there's a little bit of that, in the, I guess I'm thinking of Death Stranding now. This is kind of, because that's an extremely peaceful and serene game until it's not. Until you're fighting a giant octopus in an ocean of weird ink, um, but like in between those little um, segments, there it's just very serene and peaceful and, and derelict almost is the word. Like there's just nothing happening. It's just mm-hmm. you kind of wandering around through the wilderness. And um, there's I think a lot of the genesis for that is like that's with everything death Stranding and is this game because. Like, MGS 4 is not a quiet game. 3 sometimes, 2 sometimes, 1 sometimes, but 4 is like a very loud. I mean, the yeah, first. I think it's intentionally loud because yeah. everything's a war zone, basically. Everything's chaotic. So, yeah, I think that's an interesting juxtaposition to think about. I don't know what else to say about it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can all even say that the structuring absences of characters like Zero um, is also another way that it's quiet. Yeah, yeah, he's not in the game, so. I don't know. It's an interesting. I have to think about this more with how it relates to like the 80s are not a quiet decade. So I'm, I'm wondering if there's a well, larger the political point. Yeah, I'd also say like uh, the quietness allows for when the music to come in, mm. like it actually um, like you're like, wait, am I hearing like kids in America now? <laughs> oh, it's like 50 feet away. There's a speaker like going. Yeah, on, I, I, I always love when the when you're done with a mission and you just have like the, you're just, it's quiet trudging through the underbrush is intercut with like, Hey, <laughs> I know that song. It'd just be like, she blinded me with science blares out. You're like, wait a minute. This is, uh, this is a stealthful mission. This is a, a very covert. It's a very professional covert op. Now let's listen to our new wave. Let's blare new wave out over this helicopter speaker. <laughs> People think that's normal. That's what you usually hear in, in the wilderness in Afghanistan. It won't draw any attention at all. Yeah. And we should point out that the helicopter music stuff is, you know, obviously a reference to Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Um, but I just want to make sure I mention Apocalypse Now and its predecessor, Heart of Darkness, because they are going to matter more in our coverage a little bit later. Mm-hmm. There isn't a whole lot of fictional history with Quiet. She was an elite XOF assassin, which is why she was sent to eliminate Big Boss in Cyprus. 
She was lit up by Ishmael, causing severe burning to her skin as well as her internal organs. She was treated using parasite technology, the same one used to create the skulls. These parasites were part of a project Skullface was working on alongside CodeTalker, using some of the recovered remains from the end and other sources we'll get to later. The parasite therapy helped her recover from injuries. Given that her organs were severely damaged, she was unable to eat, drink, or breathe like a normal person. This is where the ENDS parasites come in. If you remember our MGS3 coverage, he subsisted via photosynthesis, which is now how Quiet gets her nutrients as well. The parasite technology also boosted her abilities, pretty much as it boosted the skulls. Superhuman speed, strength, perception, longevity, with stints of phasing or invisibility. Post-recovery, she was deployed to Afghanistan by Skullface to eliminate any Soviets snooping around his Sahelanthropus project. This is how Snake would fall into her crosshairs. We'll get to the rest of her story through the rest of our coverage, especially near the end and her quiet exit. But we still have a bit to discuss, namely her character design, which is predominantly a very revealing bikini top, fishnet leggings with tears on them, and then some tactical belts and pouches. While you can develop other, more fully clothed outfits for Quiet, this is basically her look for this game, aside from her initial appearance in Cyprus. The revealing nature is meant to be explicit, explicitly erotic or sexy, words used by Kojima and Shinkawa in describing the look. So I ask you, Brian, do you feel ashamed of your words and deeds with regards to Quiet? <laughs> I do feel ashamed of my words, of my words and deeds. That's... um. <laughs> Apropos of nothing, I, I use that phrase or I've used that that screenshot to describe uh, how my cat feels when I betray him because <laughs> that's that's a, that's a very cat like you mm-hmm, will be mm-hmm. you will remember this day when you picked me up the one time when I was eating. I'll kill you. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's I have I have more to say about like uh, it's sort of um, in classic Kojima fashion. She's a very well-written and well-conceptualized character who is overridden by him being a 13-year-old boy. <clears throat> like, mm-hmm. it's a classic classic Kojima character where, like, this is an interesting person with a fun backstory, fun, with an interesting backstory who I'd like to get to more into. Also, boobs. Like, that's how his brain works. So it's it's sort of hard to criticize. It's just something you kind of have to, it's part and parcel of the whole thing, I feel like. But go ahead, because we have more we can say about it. Yeah, ultimately, the quiet stuff just feels horny and weird. Yeah. But as as a cis man, it doesn't bother me, or I don't find it fundamentally damning of this game, because I do think a lot of the stuff around her character does work, and I find her ending to actually be quite fantastic when we get to it. Um, And most of the aspects of this character gel pretty well with everything else going on in this game. I think the most regrettable part is that there isn't a ton of women characters Mm -hmm. in this game at all. So that the one that does have prominence serving as a source of titillation comes off just a little more skeevy. If Strangelove, Amanda, Cecile were around, or someone like the boss or Eva in MGS3, um, I think some of the stuff with Quiet probably wouldn't be as uh, controversial as it was. But because she is kind of the sole woman character in this narrative, um, she her being presented as such does create some kind of issue. And yeah, Eva is, I mean, Eva's outfit is almost as ridiculous, but because there's two other major female characters who are in the game for the entire game and they are not that, it 
doesn't come off as as weird or or like diabolically horny as a lot of his stuff does. Like the femme fatale character is something that Kojima comes back yeah. to in basically every game of his. So I'm n- not surprised that there is a character, and I like that. Uh, aside from the end, that the snipers in his world tend to be women. Um, not not. I don't think it's any kind of explicit political statement. I just think he's like, yeah, why not? Um, but I, I I don't know. It's one of those things where like the discourse around this in 2015 was just like so dire. Um, but I think that reflects where we were in terms of like artistic discourse around sexuality in 2015. I also think some of it now is seven years later when we are fully subsumed by the sexless, passionless, mm-hmm. like MCU and star Wars universes that even a little bit titillation, even if it's not perfectly done or a little bit skeevy, I, like I welcome that into like the things I consume or watch or play. Um, I'm okay with like, things taking a swing and not like making great contact with it. But I still applaud trying to do something that is outside of like the puritanical scope of like mainstream, uh, mainstream American Hollywood right now. Yeah, I would, I would say, I mean, to, to that point, I remember the mild discourse. This is a strange one to go to. I don't know why I think it's because desert, uh, but uh, uh, I remember a little bit of discourse about how uh, people, I guess people who hadn't read Dune, uh, think how weird it was that that uh paul and jessica have a small amount of like that one section like mildly sexually charged scene it's like that's dune baby i don't know how to, how to explain that but like that's fine i don't think there's anything wrong with having like a, an awkwardly just like hints of weird sexual stuff in, in my weird sexually deprived or my weird deranged sci-fi movies you should have that like that's fine um and it's you said it's a huge like any any kind of weird horniness is still preferable to the just inexorably bland granola inoffensive sexuality of every like the the fact that we can be in this in 2022 and it can be Marvel can try and congratulate themselves for having two women kiss in a very easily editable editable scene that takes like four seconds is um, it's embarrassing like they should feel embarrassed. Mm-hmm. One thing I don't want to miss thematically is that Quiet is also the ultimate recruit for Diamond Dogs. Oh, yeah, she is. <laughs> As in someone who was ready to kill Big Boss in cold blood before being recruited to MSF's side and then eventually developing a strong relationship with Venom Snake and even dying for him. It's worth noting that Venom Snake and Quiet is one of the is low-key one of the biggest ships in the Metal Gear fandom, perhaps the biggest hetero ship at this point. So, like, the 15th biggest ship. Yes. <laughs> but the main point is that her allegiance is Sans Frontiers, and her loyalty is a synecdoche of how Diamond Dog looks at V or Big Boss overall, all of which makes Shining Lights, even in death, hit that much harder, but as we say, we'll get there. But before she can be V's buddy, we gotta fight her. So let's talk about her boss battle. I would like to say really quick, um, I do enjoy because I didn't really read their relationship as particularly sexual. I just feel like they kind of uh, maybe subconsciously Venom kind of understood her as another person who'd been had a personality overwritten by this dumb proxy war. So like Mm -hmm. she's not the person she was anymore. and, And they just have this sort of they're just sort of both lost and and. They don't have it. They don't have any. They have nothing. So they just sort of become friends. I, I like that. It's kind of sweet. 
And yeah, it really dovetails really nicely with her ending. So I, I, I'm very excited to talk about that one eventually. Yeah, all fanships aside, I think the they're ride or die for each other, um, like brothers in arms kind of thing, which I think is really cool. Um, and that crossing the gender line is also kind of nice to see all, everything else with Quiet set aside. So the boss battle with Quiet here called Cloaked in Silence takes place in a very large map around ruins. There's lots of elevation. There's a handful of man-made structures, like little two-story like ruins. Um, there are bordering cliff sides, a river in the middle, and all sorts of down logs and boulders. Marking her with your binoculars are extremely useful here. Um, that's how you'll basically locate her. But if she does her little disappearing trick, you will lose the marker and will have to reacquire her. Um, it's this battle overall is very much not dissimilar to the end. Um, you look for visual or audio clues. Um, you have a D mic built into your binocular, so it serves the same function as it did in that. And you even have um, Quiet will heal herself, like in a rainbow and like a pool, um, very similar to how the end would heal himself uh, in sunlight um, if you let him get free for too long. This mission also has an extreme version, a much harder version, uh, post-Sahalanthropus. Um, the extreme basically comes down into it's a one-shot-kills-you kind of mission. Um, if she hits you, that's game over. Um, and then she's also a lot smarter in this time around, similar to how the enemy AIs improve. Um, so um, early on, like one of my first times playing this game, um, one of the side objectives is beat her without using firearms. Um, so I marked her and then I did a supply drop on her and that knocked her out and I was able to beat her. Um, but when I came back to this extreme version of it, I tried doing that again. Um, and then she this time would always teleport before the supply drop would actually land. So um, you have to kind of be creative because if you keep doing the same thing, aside from, I guess, just shooting her, um, she will adjust to your habits. Which is... Um... And yeah, I, I doubt he took it from this, but that's a uh, that sort of boss fight is uh, from Arkham City. Is that that happens in Arkham City with Mister Freeze? Mm -hmm. but you cannot use the same method to sneak up on him twice in a row because he'll destroy yeah, it. No, that's a really good call. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's a fun. That's a good way to do boss fights. I enjoy that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like I said, there is a side objective of killing her without firearms. Um, I mentioned the supply, or you can even do a vehicle drop. You can drop a tank on her, um, which is fun. Uh, another way I've done it, this is how I did it on the extreme version to get that uh, extra objective, was I used the sleep gas grenades. Um, you have to be very smart with these because um, if you get too close to her and she knows where you are, she will start running off. Um, but if you kind of can anticipate what path she's going and you just like spam her with sleep grenades, it will eventually be enough to knock her out. Um, another method, one that I've been using a lot in my most recent playthrough, is the most leveled up stun arm, which if uh, Snake charges up the stun arm all the way, it will cause like a 40 meter radius of knocking out anyone around him. Um, and I've used that to knock her out as well. And I've also done this mission plenty of times where I just equip a sniper rifle, um, lethal or non-lethal, it just depends what I'm in the mood for, and I just do a traditional sniper battle Classic a la style. the end or sniper wolf. Yeah. Yeah. I like, um, I wanted to say that real quick. I do like this area is very designed because I, I was looking at it more when I was playing through it uh, five, six weeks ago. And I enjoy that. It's very obvious how, where a lot of this game is, I don't want to say it's procedurally generated because I know it's not true, but it is sort of designed to look sort of indistinguishable and, and like 
just natural, like just the way that like the desert looks. This is a very like boss area. Like it's designed almost like a the Shadow of the Colossus arena. Like there's mm-hmm. just Oh, that's a great column. There's just like um like they very sight lines were thought were considered making like out the whole area like it just looks like a, a a a video game area in a way that uh, a lot of, a lot of this game does not and I enjoy that that's a good it's good when you can tell the design of something like being able to pick out the design deliberately means that it was a well designed area I guess is what I'm saying I like mm-hmm. it I really like that this is one of my favorite places in the game I would say location wise yeah same. Uh, and I would say um, I don't think it's the best sniper battle in the series just because the end battle is pretty incredible, especially for the time it was made. But I think this is probably my second favorite of all the sniper battles in the series. Yeah, sniper wolf is too simple. Yeah, um, I do like the skull sniper ones that we do have mm-hmm. later on in this game. Um, but that's like a mission plus a sniper battle. There's a lot more going on. This is just straight up boss battle which there aren't a lot of those in this games like when you face the man on fire that's at the end of a very long mission mm-hmm. um so it is kind of nice to have just like a completely isolated boss battle that you can play if you want to after snake defeats quiet Kaz and ocelot the angel and devil on his shoulders debate what's to be done with her boss you're not thinking of bringing her back here are you she works for cypher we don't even know the extent of her abilities. She is not setting foot on this base. Good word, boss. Can't believe you took her down alive. Now bring her back here. Let's find out what she really is. This is too dangerous. Kill her. Don't bring her to our home. This is the boss's decision. I'll send the extraction chopper. Boss, you know I've always got your back. But if you bring her here, I'll just have her killed. Ocelot wins for now. Venom Snake agrees to bring her back to Mother Base. During the ride, Quiet seems to slip out of her cuffs and bail from the chopper, disappearing into nothingness. But once they approach Mother Base, fighter jets appear to take out the Pequod. Quiet reappears for a very Kojima action set piece, first using the Gatling gun to fend off the incoming missiles, then donning a sniper rifle to kill the jet's pilot. Having saved Snake's life doesn't buy her any goodwill on Mother Base, though, as she gre- as she's greeted by Kaz and a battalion of soldiers ready to kill her. Quiet does some more of her vanishing and not dying shtick before Snake and Ocelot intercede and have her taken away to a cell. Boss, you are going to regret this. That woman- I know. She knows our location. Either way, one of these days, we're going to have to kill her. But now is not the time. When the time comes, I'll pull the trigger. Ocelot gives an approving nod to Snake for this, as if he's thinking, this fake boss is doing real good. There is an interlude you will unlock shortly after this mission, a quiet recruit, 
in which Snake, Kaz, and Ocelot debate taking Quiet out as a buddy for one of Snake's missions. She proves herself by shooting in between the spinning helicopter blades, but Snake holds off on deploying with her for the knots. That gets us to the final set of missions we'll discuss today, a side op that once again turns into a main op, Hellbound. The initial side mission is Rescue Huey. In the mission briefing, Kaz will tell you how Huey was manning the control tower of the day of Mother Base's attack, and his body was not recovered from the disaster. He was the one who insisted on the IAEA inspection in the first place, and in our Skullface breakdown, we noted that the XOF commander absconded away with the scientist. Miller was in Afghanistan in part due to tracking down Huey, from whom Diamond Dogs just received a distress call. Snake tracks Huey to the Serac power plant, which plays us into the main operation Hellbound. In the back of the plant is a hangar, and here Venom Snake finds Skullface and Huey arguing. In the background, we can see a very Rex-like Metal Gear, Sahelanthropus. Huey had been working on an AI to control the mech, not unlike Hot Coldman 10 years ago, but Skullface has another plan for activation, one that doesn't rely on AI. Skullface is then alerted to the fact that Huey has been in touch with Big Boss, and we get a bit of deja vu from Peace Walker. Planning on leaving us, Doctor? Huh? What? I... What? Uh, uh, We're taking your legs uh, back! Uh, uh, So you're just gonna kill me? Sahelanthropus is mine now. Listen, I may dwell in the dark, but I refuse to be judged by your standards, traitor. I hope your friends give you what's coming to you. Yeah, Huey gets to eat stairs again, this time being thrown down them with his bipedal walking legs instead of a wheelchair. To use the most blasé example, think of his legs as Rhodey in the MCU after he injured his spine in Civil War. But don't worry, he got better. <laughs> Skullface orders Huey move to the Soviet base camp, and he departs the scene as well. Snake's mission is to follow and recover the scientist for sharp questioning. This is one of the longer story missions too, not unlike Where Do the Bees Sleep. You'll have to work your way out of the power plant, past several guard outposts and patrols, before finally arriving at the Soviet base camp, itself a huge area. And then when you get to the Soviet base camp, it is pretty heavily fortified. There are uh, several uh, guards on patrol, and this is the first time you will see walker gears, uh, which are basically like what they sound like, little mechs that go around and are kind of annoying to deal with if you go get into an alert stage. Um, and there will also be a chopper circulating, circulating overhead, uh, providing further patrol. It's almost a little too big, I felt like. like it's a little, the spacing, I mean, it makes it, but that's how military bases look, but it was, I was very excited to sneak through it. And then it just became a lot of um, little hotspots where you have to sneak through. And then there's a lot of like, just, I got, oh, I got to walk 50 yards. It's like, okay. But um, it's a cool, it's, it's a nice area. I like the, um, the way it kind of escalates as you get 
like farther and farther into it, it's just more and more complex until you get to the mm-hmm. like the um just where Huey Bunker, is. Which, I guess yeah. It was just like a big flat nothing. But yeah, um I don't know, it's a it's a fun area. It's I don't know if they do a good enough job differentiating it to when you come back. And I know it's it's just it's the big Sahelanthropus fight is like I don't know. I don't like that area that much as like a, a combat area. So it's it's fine, but um, I don't know. The base camp is fine. I, it's not like the most well designed area in the game, but it's not bad. It's it's it does the job. In the far rear bunker, Snake finds the mammal pod, the AI that supposedly had the will of the boss in it, as designed by Doctor Strangelove. The mammal pod does have one of those things in it, but it's not the boss as well. It's Strangelove's corpse. Hold that thought. The AI pod is at first confused by the appearance of Big Boss, which gets Huey to turn around and pay attention to the stranger in his lab. Are you? Dr. Emmerich. Snake? Hey, what gives? Ah, let me go! No, give me back my legs! Right on schedule. Now bring him back to Mother Base. Before we go and wrap up the rest of this mission story, let's chat Huey, once again voiced by Christopher Randall. Why do you suspect me? What did I do? I'm on your side! Huey's back, baby. The mimetic phantom of Otacon, Hal Emmerich if you want to be cute, but actually just his dad. We did a pretty comprehensive overview of Huey back in episode 41, The Perfect Deterrent, during our Peace Walker coverage, which I will refer you to for a deep dive into his name, design, and his character history. We'll add some more color here as we continue with our Phantom Pain coverage, of course, but a lot of the pre- and even post-Phantom Pain events are cataloged in that episode. The big design change here is Huey is no longer in a wheelchair. He uses a mechanical exoskeleton around his legs to help him walk upright, very similar to the tech we see on Walker Gears and Sahelanthropus. Like Sahelanthropus, this is fueled by Metallic Archaea, which we'll discuss in an upcoming episode. His legs, of course, are his own phantom pain of sorts. It's worth noting he doesn't physically appear in Ground Zeroes, but is heard on radio and in cassette tapes and mission briefings. We mentioned earlier Skullface took him away to Afghanistan to begin working on Sahelanthropus, at the time jointly with the Soviets, though Skullface would vocal cord parasite all of them eventually. The other big develop in between Ground Zeroes and the Phantom Pain is that he reconnected with Dr. Strangelove, and in 1980, they gave birth to Hal Emmerich. Things would go south, though, when Huey tried to put a young Hal into Sahelanthropus. Remember, the Metal Gear Zeke cockpit was only made big enough for a child-sized person like Paz. Plus, this is supposed to remind us of Neon Genesis. No Strange Love was pissed about this and had Hal sent to America. In revenge, Huey locked Strange Love in the mammal pod, where she'd unceremoniously die off screen and without an appearance in the game. This is just one of those things that by itself could be fine, but given the context of how other women characters are treated in this game or absolutely non-existent, it's just not great. It's it's a little bit of an uh, awkward retcon because Strange Love had to be gone. And I don't think they could think of another way. And I think it's really just, hey, you know, Hal sucks. This is the best way to, to put that over. He's a bad person. 
Um, I do enjoy the um, like retroactively. I enjoy that um, they make this game make sure these games make sure to nail home that he is his son is significantly better than him at all of this stuff because like uh, Anakin would not have had a problem with a child sized like taking someone else's technology and well, I guess it is still technically his, but um, recontextualizing it for a new he would just have built a new cockpit and it would work fine. Because he's good at his job, and he's not a—he's not a, a little weaselly prick. I don't know. He's a nice—he's a good boy, and and uh, Huey is a bad boy, and he deserves to die. I'm glad that he will. I'm glad that he dies in the most embarrassing fashion of any male good character. I would say. Mm-hmm. So good, bad, uh, bad, bad man. We don't like him, but yeah, it's it's unfortunate though because. Strange Love is a, a good character and could have been in this game. I think so. I don't know. You could have changed the timeline. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple things. Um, Future Sound has a really good video. Um, it's kind of tongue in cheek, but it's a Huey Innocent video, <laughs> um, and it actually kind of goes over how like Huey kind of never actually cops to anything, and then some of the language about. Um, what Huey was up to in Ground Zeroes, like in the actual codec calls or cassette tapes, he's just referred to as the scientist, which um, could honestly refer to Dr. Strangelove, who was on Mother Base at the time. Um, so I I do think Huey is innocent. I do think he's the traitor, but it is very kind of poignant that at no point do they actually get a forced confession out of him or does he admit to anything. Um, they... They want you to assume he's responsible, but they never actually factually prove it to you. Well, thankfully um, for my purposes, I don't even care if he's him. Be, him being or not being the traitor is like a secondary part of him being a, a big piece of shit. Oh so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's great. He, he could still be innocent, and he could also, but he could also still be a giant piece of shit whose death is oh yeah is uh, cosmically deserved. And yeah. he's definitely guilty of stuff that's going to happen at Mother Base later in this game as well. So yeah. There'll be a lot more Huey throughout this game as he takes a more villainous turn and is on his own revenge arc of sorts. He'll be interrogated several times, would help Eli abscond with Sahelanthropus, and will cause the parasite mutation that infects Mother Base, forcing Snake to have to kill many of his own men. We'll even get a full kangaroo court later as Huey is tried for his crimes. At the end of his trial, we get a very Dark Knight Rises moment where Kaz wants to kill him, but V has him exiled instead cast out into the Indian Ocean on just a raft and without his mechanical legs. But we'll get to all that in due time as well. Anything else you want to say about Huey here? He sucks and I hate him. Good enough. As Boss exfiltrates from the base camp, most likely using the D-Walker, Huey says he didn't betray MSF and had no idea it was cover for an attack. In fact, he blamed Snake for even having a nuke there in the first place. But no time to hash that out now, as just as the Pequod is about to touch down to pick up Snake and Huey, Sahelanthropus, Mantis, and Skullface all show up. Doctor, you're as useless as I thought. This is the real Sahelanthropus. You and your friend will die here. Behold! Today is the day weapons learn to walk upright! Since we're winding down this podcast for the short term, I'm not going to get to outline the Neon Genesis episode I wanted to do comparing Anno's work to Metal Gear Solid. 
But here, in this moment, Sahelanthropus and Mantis are giving major Evangelion vibes, down to Mantis being credited as the third child and floating like Rei Ayanami in front of the giant Evangelion-like Metal Gear. What follows is our first Sahelanthropus boss encounter, which I think is a pretty smart and fun sequence in this game. With Huey in tow, Snake has to work his way outside the Soviet camp to the nearest LZ, all the while the behemoth that is Sahelanthropus stalks the countryside with its sentry drones trying to locate the player. It's a good way to introduce the mech slowly into the story while still preserving a large-scale battle at the endgame, and also combining the mech into a more traditional Metal Gear Solid stealth sequence. It feels reminiscent of early Metal Gear Solid 4, where the goal is to avoid the geckos until later in the game when you have the firepower to defeat them. After you move far away from the base, the Pequod will be able to touch down and Snake and Emmerich board, but the threat of Sahelanthropus is not done. Snake has to man the Gatling gun and take out Sahelanthropus as it leaps up toward the chopper in a real dope slow motion sequence. Huey is astounded that Sahelanthropus is operational without his finishing touches, but Snake says stuff it, putting Huey's head back in a black bag. Good. Um, I did want to say I actually forgot. Is, isn't this uh, when you get Huey? Isn't this the point where the uh, the memo pod sort of hints that it's not Iguas? Or it's not. It seems. Part? It seems confused, but there is a side op in the post Sahelanthropus. A Sahelanthropus portion where you actually have to go and recover the mammal pod um, and that's where it gives yes, a little bit right. more of the dialogue. Yeah, um, I remember that still being a because uh, that was a trailer sequence so that was the meeting the mammal pod was uh, uh, something that was put out pre-release and I remember uh, being on a forum where people were making that claim and everyone was like you're crazy and then you know six weeks later of course. it was crazy but uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I like it. I like all the little hits those are fun I think it's specifically after that side mission, we get that kangaroo court with Huey, and yeah. they're like, the mammal pod is being lifted into wherever they're holding this kind of kangaroo court trial for him. Yes, that's right. Um, and that's that right. was absolutely part of the advanced, uh, the promotional material that was released for this game. Yep. I remember now. Should have watched some of those trailers. They had good trailers in general, this game. Kojima loves his trailers. The the New Order one in particular is one I thought about. I still think about sometimes. It's a, it's a pretty yeah, good one. With the Elasia yeah. by New Order, that's su- that's such a good trailer. Um. Anyways, this is a fun. Yeah, it's a fun little um, sort of preview fight. I do like um, bringing it back into Eva a little bit. Uh, I I like that they actually did do a pretty good job of sort of closing the loop on Metal Gear designs because Zeke. Mm-hmm. Well, it was kind of a problem that a lot of the uh, pre-MGS1 Metal Gears looked more complicated and, and were better than Rex. And Silent Anthropus probably is, but it also does look more like Rex design-wise. It, it has that same sort of burnished metal look. Mm-hmm. Um, and I enjoy that. I think that's nice to have some sort of continuity between, like, visually. It's not that much, really. It, it In a lot of ways... Um, like, I don't know, I guess, like, think, like, the, the iDroid is sort of a precursor for, like, the Soliton Radar, but it's just, mm-hmm. it's it's a little off-putting sometimes in these games where, like, the technology in 1965 is more advanced than the technology in 2005. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, this is this is goes a good, pretty good way, a uh, pretty long way of, of 
sort of fixing that. So I, I, I enjoy how, I just like how Lathras is designed in general. It's um, like one of the best pieces of design they've ever done. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, and we'll get into this in a later episode, but they try to explain away Sahelanthropus's abilities with a combination of Mantis and Metallic Archaea. Mm-hmm. So it's not fully like just the tech. Um, it's like somewhat mystical or supernatural in how it's able to do some of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I like it. And I think uh, Shinkawa famously, um, he, he shot down a question from Retronauts host Jeremy Parrish asking about the anachronist anachronisms in terms of the technology and Shinkawa just said he does what looks cool um which is fair enough i guess yeah so um oh the other thing i was going to say is that having sahelanthropus stomp around while you're ducking kind of reminds me of those uh metal gear solid one and two vr missions with janola like the oversized genome soldier who's Mm -hmm. like a godzilla Mm -hmm. type and you have to kind of stealthily move around him to get to the end of it um i kind of wish they had more of this i would love like a whole set of side ops that are just like Avoid Sahelanthropus as you work from the start of a map to the end of the map or something like that. Um, what you're saying is you would enjoy uh, stealth sections. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I can't believe I <laughs> I came to that conclusion. So back at Mother Base, Huey gets the Ocelot interrogation treatment in which, again, he denies being a traitor and even points a finger at Miller this time, who was in touch with Cypher during the events of Ground Zeroes. This questioning gives us a lot of our Huey cassette tapes in this game, including ones that discuss his time since Mother Brace's destruction, his work with the Soviets, the origins of Sahelanthropus, um, the skull symbology as Pangea was in MSF's logo, but also as Skullface's calling card. Um, He discussed Human Cloning Project led by Dr. Clark 10 years ago, which is, of course, Les Enfants Terribles. And he also mentions DARPA's involvement with Cypher, which, because Zero is kind of failing health right now because of Skullface's attack. Um, Zero is slowly transitioning control to the Patriot AIs, and that's being shepherded by Donald Anderson, who is over at DARPA at this point. Sigint, you know, we know who he becomes. Between all the info gotten from Huey and knowledge Ocelot has of Zero's movements, Snake, Kaz, and Ocelot were able to conclude that Zero was not involved in the destruction of Mother Base nine years ago. It was Skullface, and the XOF Cypher assets he are using now are his, not Zero's. I, I don't know. It's um, I remember listening to these ones, but I, I'm not as interested in these because I don't really think you need this sort of in-depth like story connection. I, I don't know if you need to know exactly who is responsible for Mother Base to get revenge for it. I the, the magic I think it still works. So the way I think of it. So, like, in the first three to four Metal Gear Solid games, you have codec calls. Yeah. You have codec calls that are story mich- story important and you have to take them. And then there are codec calls where you just keep calling Sigint or Paramedic a million times and just see what they say. And these feel more like the latter. Yeah. Like, they're there for the depth, but they're not there for the player necessarily needs to know all this. My pants. Uh, How do I remove my pants? Those ones. The, great, the greatest ones. The, the funniest things in the series. Mm -hmm. Lastly, the key information that Huey shares with his captors. Cypher was pulling out of Afghanistan and pouring funds into Africa. Skullface's plan extends well beyond Sahelanthropus. So it's off to Africa in our next episode. He mentioned something interesting. The reason why they pulled their plug on the operation in Afghanistan. He said their funding started going to Central Africa instead. Cypher is pursuing new research in Africa. 
Africa. What research? Emmerich doesn't know the details, but one thing he said does make sense. That Sahelanthropus alone isn't enough to cause an RMA. He claims that what they're doing in Africa is the missing piece. A weapon to surpass Metal Gear. Meaning it's not just another nuke. That's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is Podcast Sans Frontiers at gmail.com and at PodSansFront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support Podcast Sans Frontiers over at patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, where I am covering the Lord of the Rings at my podcast, my brother, my captain, my podcast. I'm also covering the House of the Dragon and a Song of Ice and Fire at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I do that all under the banner of Manuclear Bomb, which that's me. I've been Manu. And I have still been Brian. And uh, it is a nation we inhabit, but a language. Sorry, I got a text. <laughs> I did read for <laughs> I wonder what language it's in. Uh, Sanskrit. Hey, we talked about that earlier. Middle English, a language I can read, which is technically not English. There. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, the sins never die, can't wash this blood from our hands. I don't know why I had a discussion here. Is there anything you wanted yeah. to add? Uh, I don't know. I don't really have anything else to say about uh, Sigint or who he becomes or anyone that Meryl may or may not marry.